I'd like you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. And um, as you do that, um, come to a passage uh, in Matthew's Gospel that takes us back to a prophecy from Isaiah about the appearing, the advent of Christ in the world. I'd like uh, to read that for you and then see what God has for us this morning in these verses. In verse 12 of Matthew 4, Now when he heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And to those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, I was just uh, talking with Ron a little bit uh, in my office before uh, coming back out to share the word this morning. And uh, I was talking about the message in the 8 o'clock service and what it is that God is saying to us. And, and Ron put his finger on something and I think explained it better than, uh, than what I did in 45 minutes. <laughs> so, so I'm going to summarize that and just tell you that at the beginning. I have, I have felt drawn to this passage. And... Um, the, the burden that is on my heart to share with us as a church family is that God is speaking this passage to us, that He has a, a vision for us. You remember last week I asked you to consider praying for up to ten people who are a regular part of your life but not living in your immediate household. And I asked Charlotte if she would uh, kind of capture those thoughts and put it in the form of a little heavier stock card that you can put in your Bible. If you didn't get one when you came in, they're on the back table or they're out in the foyer. Um, and this uh, is a little more durable than a single sheet of paper. You can rewrite your names up here and it reminds you of what we're praying for. And the, the message and the mission of last week was to encourage us to begin to pray for people right around us that need a word from God. To, to begin praying for them because God wants to talk to them. He wants to communicate. He loves them. He wants to share with them, not your thoughts, but His word. Um, he has put you in their lives as an ambassador. You are... His spokesperson. You are there for a reason. And he has something he wants to say. And, and what he wants to say comes out of his love. And one of the things that we recognize about our community 
I mean, we can say this in general about the world, but our community in particular is that people in our community are sitting in darkness. They have a particular kind of darkness that overshadows them, and as a consequence, they do not see clearly. And God longs to bring light into their lives. He longs to shine upon them. He wants us to bear that word that brings the light that will illuminate them. Also, while this is not directly uh, an Advent message, it's that time of year when we think about those, but it certainly is focused around the Advent of Christ, because the passage from Isaiah chapter 9 is clearly an Advent passage. Isaiah is prophesying where these words come from. He is prophesying about the coming Messiah. And he says the, the, the people in Zebulun and Naphtali, Galilee of the Gentiles, you know, have seen a great light. And those that are walking about in the darkness, upon them a light has dawned. And he will be the one who lifts the yoke from their shoulders and their back and relieves their burden and gives them a, a kingdom that will be a kingdom and reign of peace. And that's the passage in Isaiah where it says, for unto us a son is given. We started out with that song this morning. Unto us a Savior is born. The government will rest upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Eternal Father, Mighty God. That, that's the passage from Isaiah that Matthew was quoting. And I want us to look at this passage this morning from the standpoint of where Jesus went to start his ministry. And the two key problems that humanity has that he specifically addressed in his ministry of announcing the kingdom of God is at hand. Matthew tells us that after John was arrested, we see that in verse 12, John the Baptist had been taken into custody, that Jesus withdrew to Galilee. Now, the Gospel writers do not give us a day-by-day, month-by-month, year-by-year chronology of the ministry of Christ. John kind of tells us a little bit of why at the end of his Gospel when he says, these are only a few of the things that Jesus spoke and did. I suppose if I were to tell you everything, the world couldn't contain the number of volumes. So there's way too much material to try to, to, to put down in a single writing. And so in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have a collection of events in Jesus' life that the Holy Spirit has uh, prompted them to record for us. John actually kind of fills in some gaps. And so there are things that John tells us about that are not included in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And and we kind of weave them together and get more of a complete picture. And so there's actually a gap in time between the wilderness fasting experience as Jesus went into the wilderness in the beginning of chapter 4 and this verse 12. There's a gap of time. And in that gap, the wedding at Cana of Galilee, for example, took place and, and uh, other kinds of things that John tells us about. 
But Matthew picks up the thread of the life of Jesus at a specific event. John the Baptist has been arrested. And in a sense, this is the official passing of the baton. John has been announcing the coming of the Messiah. He has been announcing the coming kingdom, as it were. He's been preaching this baptism of repentance and saying that someone will come after him who is the anointed of the Lord, the Lamb of God, that takes away the sin of the world. When John is arrested, it's as if the official transition takes place, and Jesus takes up his official public ministry as the one foretold and promised by John. Now, he had been doing other things, That certainly pointed to him, and among them his own baptism, where John had said, you know, uh, pointing to Jesus, this is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. There had been those kinds of announcements. But here's the, the, the official transition. And it's after this time that Jesus takes those followers that have already begun to follow him, and he identifies 12 of them to be his specific disciples and to take on the ministry that he is going to impart to them as as he leaves. And we see that in the book of Acts. So here's the moment. And Jesus chooses a place to anchor the beginning of his public ministry. It's like his headquarters. It's also very interesting to me that when you think about the prophecy of Scripture... There are so many prophecies concerning Messiah, and you say, how can one person fulfill them all? Where is the Savior going to be born? Well, in Bethlehem. Okay, but it says, out of Egypt I will call my son. How's that happen? And he will be called a Nazarene. Uh, and then this passage, it is in Zebulun and Naphtali, by way of the sea, beyond the Jordan of Galilee of the Gentiles, that this Redeemer will come. How is all of that going to happen? But then you see the fulfillment in the life of Christ, quite literally. By the way, this is one of the reasons why I believe the second coming of Christ is going to be just as it is literally told in Scripture. I mean, no one could figure the first one out, but then it happened exactly the way the Bible said. I think the second one is going to be very much like that. But we find that Jesus was, in fact, born in Bethlehem. You know why? Because the taxation required them to travel there to be registered. And then they flee to Egypt because of the warning and, and Herod's craziness. So out of Egypt, God tells Joseph, okay, you can go back now. It's safe. I have called my son. And where does Joseph land? But Nazareth. And so he is a Nazarene from Nazareth. And now he is in Capernaum by Galilee of the Gentiles. He moves up there. And if you can visualize the geography of the Holy Land, or you have maps in the back of your Bible, um, just look at a map, imaginary on the wall. Over here is the Mediterranean. It's to the west. And Jerusalem is down here. And the Jordan River goes this way, and the Sea of Galilee is up here. 
Bethlehem is down this way in Jerusalem and uh, Bethany and all of that here. And as you go up the Sea of Galilee, it's about 13 miles north to south and about 8 miles wide. So it's roughly has a circumference of 33 miles around the Sea of Galilee. And there are a lot of little towns around it. And up on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee is this region called Galilee of the Gentiles where two kinds of people live. Gentiles live there. (laughs) Non-Jews live there in abundance. And they are mixed in with Jews who have settled there who are called by the faithful, those free-thinking kind of wackos, those, those intellectual weirdos, those... Well, they're not orthodox, they're free thinkers, and their free thinking has led them to intermingle with pagan ideas, and nobody thinks very highly of Capernaum and that region on the northwest of Galilee. It's considered kind of a, even by the Jews, a dark place. And dark for many reasons. But it's from there that Isaiah says, The wonderful counselor, the prince of peace, eternal father, mighty God, will make his debut into the Holy Land to bring the the era of the Redeemer, the Savior, the King of Israel. It's kind of a strange place for a Redeemer to come from. I'm struck by it because I think that um, it would not be the first place that you or I would choose to launch a ministry. Why would you go to one of the darkest, most pagan, um, worldly places in the whole Holy Land the whole land of Palestine, why would you go there to start a ministry to preach the kingdom of God and the message of His presence among people? But you know, if you look at the life of Christ, He was constantly going to those kinds of people. And He was always taking them into His inner life. Those were the ones who were drawn to him because he gave them hope. And he was the real deal and they recognized it. And they were looking for, for some hope, some encouragement, some deliverance, some way out. And Jesus did not hold in front of them some impossible religion. He just offered them life and a chance to be born over again. And he went to the toughest area to launch his ministry. And you know, when we look at our community, there is a kind of darkness here. It is a tough area. And we are largely (laughs) intermingled with a variety of kinds of peoples. I have somewhat tried to follow statistics 
over the years because when I first came here uh, 26 plus years ago, I investigated the uh, the uh, demographics of the region, and and I learned that. Um, the area was predominantly Roman Catholic. In fact, in 1970, it was 95% Roman Catholic. That's a pretty, or 91%, that's a pretty high percentage. And only about 5% uh, Protestant Evangelical. Today, it is 70, 75% Roman Catholic, and only 5 or so percent Protestant Evangelical. And you say, what happened to the middle? Well, the middle has been widening with people who are not church-affiliated in any way, statistically. Now, you may know them. They may be your neighbors. But the reality of the fact is that our region has continued to grow in population, but not in spirituality. And as a consequence, more and more people live in our region who really have no claim on any church affiliation. And so we are planted in the midst of people who in one way or another live in darkness and lack the light. The prophecy says this about these individuals. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And to those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Now, for those of you that are reading the New International Version, I I wouldn't make a big deal out of this, but I know that you use both versions here, NASB and New International and probably some others. But if you're reading a New International Version, yours reads differently. It says those who are walking in darkness have seen a great light. And those who were living in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. The New American Standard says sitting. And it's interesting because the translators of the NIV felt they needed to correct Matthew's quotation of Isaiah to make it read according to the original in Isaiah. And I thought, perchance, Matthew had been using the the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament in his day, although that was not very likely because of who Matthew was. But I thought, well, maybe the Septuagint read sitting, and the Hebrew read walking, and that was the answer, but that's not the answer because the Septuagint has walking. And so, the Old Testament passage says the people were walking in darkness and living in the land of the shadow of death. But in Matthew, when he quotes this, there's a change in what they're doing. There's a change in the verb. They're sitting in the darkness. And they're sitting in the land of the shadow of death. And as I kind of pondered that a little bit, um, I was reading one of the older commentators And his interpretation of that was this, that Matthew is reflecting the current status of those people. Isaiah had prophesied about 700 or 750 years before now, and time has passed. 
And now there's a passivity that has descended upon these people. They're no longer walking around. They're, they've just sort of given up. And they're sitting in the darkness and not doing much at all. They've become a very passive people, accepting more or less their condition. Whatever you make of that, um, I did want to highlight the fact that there's a difference if your Bible reads differently from the one I'm reading. And that may be the reason is that Matthew actually changes the quotation a little bit to point out the condition of people who have become immobilized in a dark place and are being described as living and sitting in a land that is at the edge or the shadow of death. Two characteristics of these individuals. Darkness and a land at the edge of death. When I was on my time away, I was reading Hebrews, kept being drawn to Hebrews. It makes sense because I had gotten away to get some rest, spiritual rest, physical rest, some uh, kind of reconnection and reflection. And Hebrews is a letter, uh, a sermon all about rest, resting in God. And so I thought, where shall I begin uh, in the scriptures on my quest? And I began with Hebrews. And it was out of Hebrews that a lot of other thoughts spun off. One of those uh, thoughts caught me in Hebrews chapter 2 with an insight that I had never seen before. You know, God every once in a while gives us insight into the heart of people and tells us things that are true about human beings, whether they admit it or not, whether we know it or not. Um, He tells us things that are true that we can take to the bank because God has said it. Um, You know, one of the things is he has written upon the heart of every person the essence of the law and and the awareness of his being. Every human being innately senses that there is a God who is moral. Now, they may not use those terms, but they sense there's, there's, they have a conscience about right and wrong, and they have a sense of God. Their conscience may be skewed and, and affected by their culture, but every person has that. And in order to be an atheist, the Bible says you have to work at it. You have to go against all of your natural instincts and rationalize your way out of what your heart knows to be true to the contrary. That's what Romans 1 is all about. You have to make an effort to be an atheist, professing themselves to be wise. They exchange the glory of the incorruptible God into images, and their foolish heart was darkened, and they persisted in moving away from God by way of choice. Well, I discovered something else in Hebrews that the Scripture tells us is true of every human being. It's in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, and it's very insightful. 
since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, when we ask ourselves the question, why did Jesus come into this world? Why did the eternal God take on human flesh, consent to be born of the Virgin Mary, and come into human history in a body? Why did he take on human flesh? And the answer to that question is, so that he could die in it. He was born with the cross in mind. That he might, as a human being who lived without sin, die a death on the cross that would render powerless the one who had the power of death. That is the devil. Because it is sin that brought death, and death that brings separation, and Jesus took on a body to die in it on the cross, a body like ours. That's what the first part of this section says, that he might render powerless the one who had the power of death, that is the devil. And here's the insight, verse 15, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. That's talking about every human being on the planet. And here's the truth about every person outside of Jesus Christ. And many people who have professed Him but have not really gotten to know Him. The truth is that every person is driven by a slave master called the fear of death. And that is what is propelling them through life trying to grab all they can, trying to get the most, trying to squeeze every drop out of life because of the fear of death. It's in the heart of every person. We may not recognize it as such. We may not call it what it is. But the truth of the fact is that every person on the planet, as soon as they begin to become aware of life, and begin to develop a consciousness of their mortality, fear the end. And many of them don't know what's really coming beyond that. If anything's coming beyond that, or what's it going to be like, or what am I going to have to deal with? And so, the idea is to grasp all you can in the present I know people that fill their lives with noise and activity. They've always got something plugged into their ears. Or a radio on, or the television all the time. Or they want to be at the malls. They want to be out shopping. They want to be with crowds of people. They want to feel alive. Because they can't stand to sit still and be quiet. You might have a thought, and it might not be one that makes you comfortable. 
So as long as I can keep thoughts at bay, I will just engage in a carnival all of my days. Fear of death, really. I had two friends at the fire department where I uh, served as a paramedic for a number of years, and sometimes I would go in the morning and I would catch these two fellows <clears throat> sitting at the table having a cup of coffee and reading the paper. And they were always looking at the obituaries. And they always joked about it, you know. And I and I would ask them, because I knew what their answer was going to be after a while, so I'd kind of tease them. What, come here reading the obituaries. Well, we want to be sure we're not there. Because then we can get on with our day, you know. More to that than meets the eye. And one day, one night, one of those two men had a massive heart attack. The doctor's assessment after the autopsy was that he really died before he hit the floor, as they say. Our squad was called to the scene because they lived in the district. There's nothing we could do. And the next morning, you know, it was going to be his name in the obituaries. Not literally the next morning. And the other fellow did a very strange thing. He got on his motorcycle and got out on the freeway, I-90, and headed west in excess of 100 miles an hour on a motorcycle past Rockford. And I said to him, why did you do that? And he said, I had to do something to feel alive. And I thought, that's a strange way of feeling alive. Flirting with death yourself just to make yourself sense the fear, the adrenaline, the, the tension to somehow cope with not his friend's death, but his own mortality. People live their lives in one way or another afraid of death. And Jesus is the one who brings light into that dark place and takes away the fear of death by bringing the assurance of life eternal. I have heard it said, and I, and I wholeheartedly agree with it, that you cannot begin to live until you are no longer afraid to die. Until you have come to that place where you do not fear death itself, you cannot fully engage in life because you're always worried about what would happen. God wants to bring us to a place where we know, where we know and have the assurance of life eternal in his presence, not some weird, heavenly, whatever, nebulous kind of thing, but the reality that he has made a place for us where we are going to be with other people 
who share our life in him. We're going to know each other. We're going to have meaningful interaction. Our lives are going to make sense. We are going to continue. And we're even going to be like him in his resurrected humanity because we're going to see him as he is. And we're going to walk in the amazement of that resurrection. For eternally sharing and experiencing life together. This is not the end. And for the people who are sitting in the shadow of death, Jesus is a light dawning in their darkness. The other thing that the passage says, the one problem is they're in the shadow of death. And Hebrews tells us that's a frightful place to be. But the other part of the passage is that they are sitting in the dark. That, the, the, the juxtaposition of light and darkness has been something that has almost obsessed my mind for a while now. That I can't get those figures out of my mind. And I wanted some way to illustrate that. I even thought about going out and, and buying black paper and covering the windows this morning. And all the light in the room and turning the lights out so that it would be dark, dark. Just as a visual illustration, you just have to go with me there in your minds because that just didn't seem very possible. Plus, it might be really weird. But um, but dark is dark. It's a place where nothing really makes sense. Again, going back to my experience in the mountains... Uh, my natural biorhythm, I think, is to go to bed around 9 o'clock or so and get up between 4 and 5. That seems to be the way my body likes to work. And, uh, and the truth is, all my life, my most productive hours have always been the first three or four hours of an early morning. So if I could figure out how to make that work back in real life, Instead of just in the mountains, you know, I would be going to bed at nine o'clock and setting my alarm for four or five. That that because what I can what I can have happen between five thirty and nine o'clock in the morning is just amazing. But anyway, I didn't have a whole lot to do there at night, so I was going to bed eight thirty, nine o'clock, nine thirty, you know, and. After a while, I was done sleeping by 4 or 5 in the morning, I'd wake up. And I had uh, rearranged the furniture since I was there by myself. I didn't have to have anybody at the table but me. So I had pushed the table into the uh, portion of the chalet that was built out. And I had windows on three sides. So I could sit at the table and look outside in every direction. And I looked out over the mountains. And I... they, they call them hollows there. You, there's the low spot between two ridges. And I'm up on one side, and there's a mountain ridge across from me. And sitting there in the chalet, I'm looking out the front window at the mountains across from me. And you get up at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, it's dark. 
In fact, sunrise does not count in the mountains, no matter what your, you know, your calendar says the time of sunrise is. When you're in the mountains, that doesn't count. It depends on whether you're on the east side or the west side of the ridge, whether it's going north and south or east and west. The sun comes up based on your position and how much shade is covering your area. And we were kind of in a hollow facing north and south. And so the way the sun would come up, it had to get over the, the one mountain ridge and shine onto the other. So you got the picture? So I would find myself sitting at the table there looking out a window that was simply looking back at me. Because it's pitch black outside. You can't see a thing. All the lights are out. There's no moon. It is dark. And then the light, the morning, begins to dawn. And the first thing that would happen is I could discern the ridge across from me against the sky because the sky would be start to lighten. And the ridge would be there. And for a, a while, that was the only discernible thing. That's about the time I would turn the lights out and enjoy the sunrise. And I had a chance to sit and watch that happen many mornings. And so you're, you're there in the dark and you see the ridge begin to form in the sky and it's like, okay, dawn is coming. And then as the sun would begin to rise you could begin to make out the shapes of things besides the ridge of the mountain. The trees would begin to take shape. You would see the one appear in the front yard. <laughs> and you could eventually begin to tell the evergreens from the other kind that it lost their leaves. But everything is still gray. It's either black or gray, or lighter in the sky. Maybe a little color at this point in the sky. But all the terrain is still basically in darkness. And then as the sun would get a little higher, then you would see the color begin to emerge. Because you have to have light to even see color. And the evergreens now were not filled in shapes, they were green shapes. And the rocks began to take on their glistening hues, and the brown leaves began to look brown instead of just murky darkness at the base of the forest. And as the sun would come up, things would begin to take their full color and their exact shape, and you could see so clearly. And the scripture uses this metaphor to explain to us what it's like when Christ comes into the life. The first thing is you see a great light. There's that moment when suddenly the light comes on and if you embrace that by faith, the new birth occurs. That's the initial encounter with Jesus once I was blind, but now I see. All of a sudden, 
I recognize I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. All of a sudden, I recognize He is the Savior who has saved me from sin. All of a sudden, I realize God loves me and has made life for me. And the light comes on. And then, as I begin to embrace Jesus with all of my heart by faith, that light begins to shine in my life, making sense of my world. And friends, the only sense that can ever be made of the world is the sense that Jesus brings to it. Apart from Him, men and women are groping in darkness. The imagery is vivid. They cannot see. They do not know what is significant, what is valuable, what is a tree, what is a pile of garbage. They don't know. They can't make it out. And so you have people sitting in darkness who are spending their lives because they touched something that felt wonderful to them, and now they want to possess that thing. And if the light came on, they would find out they had their hand in a bag of garbage. They don't know that. And so they're pursuing the goal that they don't even understand what they're driving after. They're in the dark. Can we get that somehow, by God's grace in our minds, what it means... To be in the dark. All that has to happen for me every once in a while. I like it dark when I'm sleeping. And so, pull the shades, close the blinds, bedroom's dark, close the door. I know the way to the bathroom. Hope I'm not getting too personal here for all of you. <laughs> I know the way to the bathroom. If someone else, I won't say who, Put something in the path that's not supposed to be there. I'm in trouble. I trip every time. I, I, I know it's not supposed to belong there. I'm vividly reminded of that because suitcases get laid out on the floor as trips are being packed for. And sometimes they're not where they should be. At least in my mind, that's my opinion. They're in my, I don't see them. People stumble in the dark outside of Christ. They're stubbing their toe. They're banging their shins. They're chasing things that they think are jewels and they're trash. They're, they're living for moments that have no meaning. Their life does not make sense. They don't understand what's going on. They can't see. There's no color. It is not vivid. They are blind and in the dark. And the scripture describes Jesus as being the light that dawns. The light that comes on in the darkness. The light that shines for those who are sitting in darkness. Now, I want to tell you an interesting thing. I'm just about done here, but I want to wrap up with a conclusion about John the Baptist. In John, John's Gospel, 
John chapter 4, I mean John chapter 1 verse 4, the scripture says, In Him, that is Jesus, the Word, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. Remember what he said? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Are you the Messiah? I am not the one. It is said of him, he was not the light. But Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, as he's speaking to his disciples, says, You are the light of the world. Now, what is the difference between John the Baptist, who was a committed follower of God, Preaching a message of repentance and heralding the coming of Messiah. I mean, how much better can it be? And yet it's said of him, he was not the light. But Jesus says of his disciples, you are the light. And no one lights a candle and puts a basket over the top of it. But they've set it on a table so people can see. But the key is in verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. It's Jesus' life that illuminates. And the difference between John the Baptist and the disciples and followers of Jesus Christ and all of us is very simply the reality that until the resurrection, until the atonement had been completed, until Jesus said those powerful words, it is finished, and the debt had been paid, and our temples had been cleansed, the Holy Spirit of God could not reside within. John the Baptist did not have the indwelling presence of God. And Jesus said, I tell you this, in all of the prophets, there is none greater than John the Baptist. But I also say to you that the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And the difference is, we have the light, the life within. We have the life inside. God Dwelling in us, like He dwelt in Him. And when we go places, we are bearers of the light. We have the light shining in us and through us. We carry the light. It's, it's illuminating because it is genuine life. The life is the light of men. And it's amazing when people's eyes see the light, what can happen. It was the centurion in that region of paganism and darkness and whatever 
who had observed Jesus. You know he had because of what he says. He'd watched him for a while. And then one day his servant was ill. And he goes to Jesus and he says, I would like for you to heal my servant. And Jesus said, I'll come right away. And he says, you don't need to come. For I am a man in authority. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And I say to this one over here, come, and he comes. I have authority. People do what I say. And I've watched you. You have authority over life. You have authority. So you don't need to come. All you need to do is speak the word. And even Jesus in that moment is amazed. And he says, I tell you this. I have not seen this kind of faith, not even among the most faithful in Israel. This man gets it. And he speaks the word, and we are told in the scriptures, in that hour his servant began to heal. He saw the light, the centurion saw the light. His eyes were open to the truth. He believed, and he got it more than the most faithful Jews. And Jesus said, you are the light of the world, because I'm living in you. Let your light shine. Let it shine. Get out of the way. Let it is kind of a passive acceptance. It has activity, but the activity is to get out of the way. Let them out the door. Well, how do you do that? You move. You're blocking the door. Let them out. Okay. Let it shine. How do I do that? God, not I, but you. This day, live out through me. I I don't want to cover your light. Live out through me. Shine in the darkness. And Jesus said, so that they will see your good works. And glorify your Father in heaven. I've just about beat that horse to death, but in case you didn't get it, and all the many other times, Jesus makes a direct connection between the works they will see when you let the light shine. Direct connection between glorifying God. Because when they see that light, they will know it isn't you. They will automatically know it's him. And they will make the connection, and and it will raise their curiosity, among other things. And some of them will open up. You know, I I was going to ask for testimonies. I don't have time to do that right now. I was going to ask for testimonies of people that have already seen God at work this week. Someone shared in the 8 o'clock service openly about an opportunity God gave them this week because being in that spirit of prayer and watchfulness, And then two other people coming out the door told me of opportunities they had this week. You know, I had an opportunity this week. I've been praying for people, and and uh, there's I put a couple of my neighbors down, and I noticed something wasn't right at one of the neighbors' houses. Their Christmas lights weren't up, and they always have Christmas lights. And a car was in the driveway that's not normally there. I don't. I'm not a nosy neighbor. I don't see those kind of things all the time. So. 
I think God pointed that out to me and prompted me to make a phone call. And in my phone call, I learned that my neighbor was just diagnosed last week with a terminal illness, and he's already in hospice, and he had no warning, no symptoms, nothing until that moment. And now I'm praying. I'm praying for the privilege of shining the light. I don't know what's happening as you're praying, but already things are happening. And and friends, listen. Let your light shine. Jesus Christ is in you. He loves this community. He loves your friends and neighbors. He loves your family. He loves the people you work with. He wants to send the light into their lives. He wants to speak to them. He wants to use you as the ambassador. And don't think just because you are situated in an unlikely place, Jesus chose the least likely place to begin his work. Because really and truly, they're a little more open in certain ways. I, 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 in certain ways, would rather have a conversation with an with out-and-out pagan than with someone who thinks they're spiritual and doesn't have a clue. You can get a whole lot further. So let the light shine. Jesus came into the world, the light shining in the darkness, making sense, finally, out of life, and taking away the fear of death. Father, thank you so much for our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is the light, which, uh, shining in the darkness, enlightens men and women, illuminates their life, begins to make sense of it. We pray, Lord, that we would be faithful bearers of the light and that you can change our world because of it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.